was looking at my phone and then my left eye just went bright as though someone had put a torch in it and I started to blink. I was drinking some water and uh, the water wouldn't stay in my mouth, kept dribbling out. I just thought it was uh, still out of breath a bit from the bike ride. I came into the house. My daughter sat at the kitchen table. I'd been, as I say, in the garden. She sat there with her friend. I sat down with my water. I'm dribbling out my mouth and I'm slurring my words now. Taken to hospital, ran their tests and scans. Didn't show anything. By this time in a and I'd lost use of my left arm too. And my eyesight, though, had started to return. After about probably six hours, in fairness, in A&E and other departments being tested and, and hit with little bars on your knees, check your reflexes. I was admitted to the uh, the stroke ward for observation. My hands let go of the rail and I came flying down onto the floor, onto the hard floor. I lay on the, the shower floor in, in the water, probably in total for about 15, 20 minutes. When I hit the floor, I started to cry and at some point I'd wet myself as well. And I, I was unable to sit up or move. So I just assumed it was because I'd hurt myself when I fell. And this, this doesn't make any sense now, I realise. I, I couldn't shout for help. And then before I know it, I'm in a hoist, being taken out of the bathroom and then put onto a, a hospital bed with a nurse. And the nurse is a, a lovely lady who uh, found me called Beth Airy, who uh, I now realise probably saved my life. Beth was able to treat me and explain that she thought I'd had a stroke. Hello, this is Mark Goodyear. Welcome to Stroke Stories. It's the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. Emotional and behavioural changes are a common effect of stroke. Not only can the stroke impact one's mood and outlook, but the area of the brain injury and the chemical changes may have significant effects on the brain. You or your loved one may experience feelings of irritability, forgetfulness, carelessness or confusion. In this episode, we hear from Phil Woodford from Garstang in Lancashire, who had a stroke at the age of 45. Nothing really quite remarkable about me, personally. Dad to two girls, now two teenage girls, so the house is a bit chaotic. I was a keen cyclist, never described myself as uber fit, but strong probably is how I'd describe it. I've worked in the NHS as a manager since 1999. I remain in the NHS as a, as a hospital director in the Morkin Bay area. It was the job I had when I had the stroke as well, and I was lucky enough to be able to return to work. For transparency, I'm, I'm speaking obviously on my own behalf today. I'd had some symptoms, and at the time, you know, you, you don't join the dots together, but why would you? You know, in the weeks leading up, I'd had some uh, nosebleeds and dizzy spells. Didn't really think anything of it. Tests at the GP didn't show anything, and the specialist didn't think it, it warranted any further investigation. If I felt worse, come back to them. I did come back to them, but it was in the back of an ambulance. I've got no one to blame. They ran the tests. They can only do what they've got. And uh, it didn't show anything. And then what happened was it was a Saturday morning in August 2016. It sticks in my mind for many reasons, not just because I had a a stroke, but it it was my daughter's birthday as well. Just going for a bike ride. Nothing remarkable about that. 20 or 30 miles. Came home, had a shower, got in the garden just to relax. And then I was looking at my phone. And then my left eye just went bright as though someone had put a torch in it and I started to blink. I was drinking some water and uh, the water wouldn't stay in my mouth, kept dribbling out. I just thought it was uh, still out of breath a bit from the bike ride. I came into the house. 
my daughter sat at the kitchen table. I'd been, as I say, in the garden. She sat there with a friend. I sat down with my water. I'm dribbling out my mouth and I'm slurring my words now. So the two girls just thought, you know, it's Anne's dad, my daughter, just messing around. I knew there was something wrong. I just couldn't really put my finger on it. So I Googled signs of a stroke after Googling signs of a heart attack. I assumed it wasn't a heart attack because don't let working in the NHS dispel you. I'm not a clinician. I just assumed if it was a heart attack, I'd have some sort of chest pain. And people always talk about jaw pain and something in your shoulder pain. I, I was having none of that. I knew a little bit about stroke. So I needed to refresh myself. I Googled signs of a stroke while dribbling everywhere. I read the fast information again and wasn't quite sure. With the uh, the speech bit, I thought that might affect your mouth. And so I started to shout for my wife that I thought I was having a stroke. Could she come and help me? Wife came downstairs. Kids still convinced I'm messing around and telling me off. Wife phones for an ambulance. Did some quick checks over the phone while the ambulance was on the way, such as touching my nose. At the time, I thought it was funny and pretending not to touch my nose. It turned out I couldn't touch my nose, and I got told off by my wife for messing around. It does turn out that I couldn't touch my nose with my left hand. Taken to hospital, ran their tests and scans, didn't show anything. By this time in a and I'd lost use of my left arm too, and my eyesight, though, had started to return. After about probably six hours, in fairness, in A&E and other departments being tested and, and hit with little bars on your knees, check your reflexes. I was admitted to the uh, the stroke ward for observation and I, I stayed there overnight. Again, nothing really remarkable, nothing on the stats to show that there was any problem. And then in the morning, as stubborn as I am, I had a bike race, which makes me sound fitter than I, I say I was. It was the first time I'd entered one. It was an off-road bike race across the Morkin Bay Sands and I decided I was going to enter it. So I was going to get a taxi and just go home, uh, which is my stubbornness in me. So I checked with the nurse, had a shower. I'm in the shower holding on. And typically you don't get you don't get admitted knowing that you're going to be there overnight. So I've got no soap or toiletry. So I'm reaching over to get the hand soap whilst I'm in the shower from over the sink. And uh, as I do that, my left leg flies up in the air. In my mind, I'd stood on a bar of soap, which just shows my brain had started to switch on and off at this point. I clearly wasn't on a bar of soap. I hadn't brought any soap with me, but... My mind had decided that's what was happening. So left leg still up in the air. My hands let go of the rail and I came flying down onto the floor, onto the hard floor. I lay on the, the shower floor in, in the water, probably in total for about 15, 20 minutes. When I hit the floor, I started to cry. And at some point I'd wet myself as well. And I was unable to sit up or move. So I just assumed it was because I'd hurt myself when I fell. And this, this doesn't make any sense now, I realise. I, I couldn't shout for help. So my, again, my mind's telling me that's because the water's making a lot of noise. No one can hear me, so I can't hear myself either. I now realise it was actually my brain not working. Phil was now suffering a full-blown stroke. I was able to slide myself a little bit, throw myself around towards the typical hospital metal bins. And I was able to lash out with my legs and kick the bin against the wall just to try and make some noise as much as I can. And then I was shouting for help and my, my voice eventually got a little bit louder. And I, and I remember looking down upon myself. I'm not a particularly religious person. You know, I, it's sort of out of body. I could remember lying there looking at myself and the door opening. And then I'm looking out through my own eyes and I could see people coming in and hear voices. And then there's lots of hands on me. And then before I know it, I'm in a hoist being taken out of the bathroom. 
and then put onto a, a hospital bed with a nurse. And the nurse is a lovely lady who uh, found me called Beth Airy, who uh, I now realise probably saved my life. Beth was able to treat me and explain that she thought I'd had a stroke. So we think now on the Saturday, because this is now Sunday morning, that I'd had a, a TIA on the uh, on the Saturday, a transient ischemic attack on the Sunday, a full-blown stroke. So because it was in the hospital, my timing, I guess I could say I was lucky if that's the right word, fortunate, I could get to the A&E really quickly to have thrombolysis. I'd had the stroke on a Sunday. So thinking it was fortunate I'd had the stroke in hospital, whoever commissioned the services decided that thrombectomy wouldn't be commissioned at a weekend for some strange reason, which meant there was no team who could perform thrombectomy. Thrombectomy is the mechanical recovery of clots in the brain. It's not a craniotomy where they're drilling in or cutting in through the skull. It's a catheter that goes up through the, the artery from your, from your groin up past your heart into one of the main arteries in your brain, grabs the clot, and they, they pull it out by an interventional radiologist. So at all time, they can see what's going on using the, using the equipment. But the magic of it is that it means the blood perfuses back to the brain uh, really quickly for those that have had a clot. Not everybody is suitable for it. It depends how much salvageable brain matter, they call it, is available. I was suitable for the procedure, but as I say, unfortunately, it was a Sunday and nobody could perform it for me. I know they did try to get a team in, but you know I can't blame the staff. They weren't rusted to be in. They were out doing whatever they were doing. After that, I was in hospital following the stroke for about four months, went through various stages. I'd begun with my whole left side was hemiplegic, so there was no movement on the left side as it was a right-sided infarction. Uh, what I didn't realise is, so I knew people who had had strokes, so yes, my arms and my legs were affected. I didn't realise there was any muscles under my stomach fat, and they were all affected, so obviously I couldn't sit up. I'd lost bladder control. And after about three months, I started to regain through the physio some feeling in my left hand and then slowly my leg. So the recovery was quite slow. I left hospital being able to uh, to walk with a stick. I didn't need to have the wheelchair full time that I, that I was using. And then over progressively, probably about two or three years, I've been able to get stronger and stronger through uh, repetitive exercise. And although it's five, six years on now, you know, I'm, I'm training every week, trying to keep uh, my mind active and, and my limbs active. It was just repetition and repetition. So I use a punch bag now and use my left arm a lot, just just making sure that I can get some control into it. So I still have a weakness down my left side. If I'm walking, I'm walking with a limp. And I'm trying to correct that as much as I can through strength exercises. Coming up, Phil talks about the emotional difficulties of suffering a stroke. Because I don't look like I've had a stroke, whatever that looks like. Uh, I just feel like I have constantly. It, it never leaves my mind, if I'm honest. If I'm walking to go somewhere, I can only walk so far because of the pain, and your mind goes straight back to it. So mentally, it's been really difficult, and the mental support, the psychological support, has been really lacking uh, for me trying to get that through the health service. Now, it's been really poor. If there's one thing which I wish I had a magic wand to change, it would be that. And about helping other stroke survivors. Some of the health professionals I know have linked me up over the years with other survivors who have gone through similar at a similar age, just to talk to them. Not, I found it difficult at first. What I didn't want to do is uh, is really be rubbing it in their face. Yeah, I've been there, and look, I can ride a bike now, and I can just about jog. 
So I found that personally difficult. I didn't want them to feel depressed by it. But what I have been able to do is share some of my experiences. Let's hear how Phil's progressing through his recovery. Physically, I'm weak down the left-hand side. It's caused some knock-on effects in terms of the weakness. I'm in hospital in two days' time for a spine operation. It's meant with my leaning to one side. I've got some uh, erosion of my lower lumbar discs, which has trapped the sciatic nerve. So that's quite painful at the moment. I'm actually looking forward to the operation and just getting some of that pain relief. Mentally, I, I feel fairly sharp. I suffer from fog, sort of brain fog and fatigue. Probably the fatigue on a regular basis, the brain fog more when I'm tired. So I'm drinking a lot of water currently, hoping that that's the, the saviour. I keep reading saying waters, you know, I need to drink much more. So I'm, I'm doing that. But the tired, well, it's not the tiredness, it's the fatigue. And I guess I get frustrated when people think it, it is just a tiredness and sleep doesn't really help. You know, you constantly feel like you can sleep. And it doesn't matter how much you sleep, it doesn't seem to recharge the battery. So, so that, can be, that can be frustrated. Mentally, it's really difficult. I don't feel like the fill from before the stroke. So acceptance hasn't been good for me. It's quite obvious I've had a stroke. I know what's happened and, and why and the impact. But uh, in terms of adjusting to it, even six years on, I find it really difficult. You know, I've got to do things in a different way. So I'm a bit stubborn. I do need to accept and move on, but I do find that very hard. So I spend a lot of time trying to help other people wherever I can. You become a little bit like Velcro once people know that you've had a stroke. And I'm very open about it. I find people of a similar age who have been through it or got uh, recently or just gone through it. And they want someone just to talk to. So I think this podcast is great to listen to other people's experiences. I realise it's not this way for everybody. I was in hospital with a number of people, you know, who are now still in wheelchairs who are unable to walk. And they've, they've got a different quality of life. They've got a different outlook in life and a different acceptance to me. Because I don't look like I've had a stroke, whatever that looks like. Uh, I just feel like I have constantly. It, it never leaves my mind, if I'm honest. If I'm walking to go somewhere, I can only walk so far because of the pain. And your mind goes straight back to it. So mentally, it's been really difficult. And the mental support, the psychological support has been really lacking uh, for me trying to get that through the health service. Now, it's been really poor. If there's one thing which I wish I had a magic wand to change, it would be that. I think the hidden effects that people don't see is really difficult. And returning to work. It was really difficult, the transition back to full-time work. The benefit, or the help I got, was through access to work through the Department of Work and Pension Scheme, where advisors were able to look at how I could work from home and adaptations for the office. So so physical stuff, I'm really quite blasé about it. It's... uh, it's money. It's whether employers are willing to spend the money. You know, it's desks, it's chairs, it's, it's does a door need to be wider to accommodate a new style of chair. It's people's understanding, which is difficult. And even now, you know, people can look at me because they don't see something different. You know, everybody assumes everything's okay. People can't see the pain or the discomfort you might be in because you now sit differently. So the return to work, it, it was difficult because of the tiredness. And because of a stubbornness in me and I guess a bit of male bravado and pride, I didn't want people to think I couldn't do what I could do before. So some of it was self-imposed. I wanted to push myself and not accept that I couldn't work at the same level anymore. So it was, it was really hard. There was, there was good understanding from people I was working with at the time and people really tried to help. My employer made it easy for me to get back to work because I couldn't drive. They had, uh, along with access to work, they'd funded uh, transport for me to get to and from work through a taxi. 
to some people might not sound a lot, but I'm lucky I work for a big employer. You know, a lot of people I know when I was in hospital we worked for small employers, you know, paying for a taxi for them to get to work unless it was subsidised. You know, it'd just be a no-no in today's financial crisis and everything going on. It must be really difficult for people. If I was just staying on that and return to work, if I had one ask of people, it would be that employers got involved with uh, with survivors as they're uh, returning to work. And by involved, I mean get hands-on with their therapy and rehab, visit them at home and just understand what it means for them. Because for anyone to come back, it, it, you know, I had all the offers of do I want to take sick retirement, ill health retirement, and I didn't. You know, I was only I was only 45, 46 with two young girls and, you know, you, you want to still be earning and uh, and supporting your family, or I did. So that, 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 that bit was quite difficult where had my employer actually seen what was possible without the pressure of work, I think they might have seen me in a different light. For some people, I was never expected to come back to work. And therein lies the problem working with a lot of medical folk. You know, they know the worst that can happen. And what and what they, you see most of the time is a lot of people either making a very slow or no recovery. So I wouldn't say I was the exception, but given the extensive nature of the stroke, then yes, it was a surprise I returned to work. And I can just put that down to there was a, there was a level of underlying, underlying fitness rather than a high level of underlying fitness. And uh, just a bit of dogged determination. Everything I read told me that I've just got to keep the repetition and help the brain to relearn to use the other side. And that, that's still how I see it today. Some of the health professionals I know have linked me up over the years with other survivors who have gone through similar at a similar age, just to talk to them. Not, I found it difficult at first. What I didn't want to do is uh, is really be rubbing it in their face. Yeah, I've been there, and look, I can ride a bike now, and I can just about jog. So I found that personally difficult. I didn't want them to feel depressed by it. But what I have been able to do is share some of my experiences in terms of the rehab and what's worked for me. It might not work for them, but by and large, I think it helps. I've also uh, joined a local group, which is a which is a patient and carer group for the NHS, and I chair that, which is all about the local NHS trying to improve its stroke services. So we're we're actively involved in in reviewing plans and making sure that the patient and carer's voice is heard, and that where the planning things that we can influence that. And it's the carer's bit I feel actually the most passionate about. You know, I often say that my wife had it harder than I did after I had the stroke. Yes, I had all the, the physical and the mental challenges, but in there she didn't have any of those yet. Her life and the family's life was turned upside down. You know, one day I could use the toilet and walk around, the next day I couldn't. You know, the house physically was changed around. What we could do is leisure time changed. So I, I do think carers need all the support in the world. I remember the Stroke Association quite helpfully asking my wife, you know, did she need anything? while I was in hospital and you don't know what you don't know. So my wife didn't know what she, she needed. You know, we needed someone to walk the dog if we're honest, you know, we had a big dog that needs walking, whether I'm in hospital or not. So some of it now is the practical things. I can put people in touch with charities that actually do do that and walking dogs and some of the practical help. So I've learned really where I think the shortcomings were in advice or support we needed and try to make sure I can influence those with the work I'm doing wherever possible. Phil thinks you should be careful what you read about stroke recovery. You know, and I say this with some confidence, you know, you'll read a lot of stuff about, you know, after two years or three years, you can't improve. We know it, it it's absolutely rubbish. You know, you, you can constantly be improving whatever age you are. 
And so I'd say, you know, just just keep trying. And it's repetition and practice. And it, it's really boring and tedious to do the same thing time and time again. But I told people I used to stand when I could stand at the kitchen counter. And I'd have to place my left hand onto the kitchen drawer and slide my hand in. But I'd then pull it backwards and forwards until my arm wouldn't do anymore. And it is just that repetition where now I can do it without thinking. It's not comfortable or as good as my right hand. And for family members, I would say age is just a number. You know, I've seen people in their 70s and 80s be, be written off, including a family member, you know, and just left by, by the, uh, the health service because the scene is part of me, just too old. And on the other side, I've seen people of a similar age, as I say, into their 70s and 80s still improve. You know, still that determination just to make that, you know, it might only be that it's a finger twitching, but for them, it gives them a load of hope. The fact that you can see something moving again, or their speech improves slightly. So it's a keeper, keep supporting your loved ones. The loved ones and our carers, they see the improvements more than we do. You know, so we're measuring it in in weeks and months. You know, it's not the type of illness that changes every day. It's really quite slow. It's just bear with us and have some faith. Phil's physical recovery has been excellent, but he continues to struggle with the emotional toll his stroke has taken on him. Despite these difficulties, though, he remains positive and helps other stroke survivors whenever he can. Thanks very much for listening to Stroke Stories and for supporting us. Please do recommend the podcast to anybody you think it will help. And if you can spare the time, do rate and comment on the episode you hear to help us spread the word. And if you know or you are a stroke survivor and you've got a story you can share, please do. Our DMs are open on Twitter and Instagram. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. Listener.